It's Friday. After a couple weeks off, we're back on DC Signal to Noise. I'm John Harris, along with Jim Wiesmeyer from Pro Farmer. And well, Jim, first, I guess we owe an explanation here. And it's my fault we've been gone a couple of weeks. Uh, uh, to be blunt, uh, coronavirus hit our house and we were we were down and out for uh, a little over a week. But uh, uh, very, we, we, I consider ourselves very fortunate, even though we all got it. Um, it's much milder than some other people have had it, even though it, it was fairly significant. Um, but you know, we're all pretty well recovered now. So, uh, pre- pre- I feel pretty thankful and, uh, you know, certainly missed doing this for a couple of weeks and glad to be back this week. It's good to have <laughs> right. you back and your voice is strong. That's, that's what I listen for. Your voice is back. <laughs> Indeed. So well, let's get started with it. Um, and again, uh, well, first of all, if you're listening on the podcast, a reminder that we do do this live on the AgriTalk Facebook page at 1 p.m. Central, 2 p.m. Eastern every Friday, um, although we offer all Friday now because of holidays. But um, join us uh, on the AgriTalk Facebook page. Join in the conversation. We can ask questions live like Ryan already has. We'll get to uh, his question about grain export numbers here in a little bit later on in the conversation. Uh, be, be sure to do that. Um, and if you are uh, joining right now as we record this live, be sure to add your question or comment in the comment section there. Let's get to it, Jim. And let's start with, um, well, again, we're recording this on Friday afternoon. We're going to see the government shut down later today? You know, it could, but it would be, let's hopefully, even if it does shut down, OMB is signaling that the, their current export, their current expectations office management and budget is that it wouldn't be long so they're not putting out any <clears throat> advisories other <clears throat> other than that we're seeing the typical uh i mostly call them games but the senators uh you know mentioning some you know things are heartfelt uh, senator uh, josh hawley from missouri is saying he won't give the okay for any unanimous consent because he wants to know the specific language in the around 900 billion dollar you know, COVID aid package. Uh, and there are some other things. A number of Senate Democrats are saying, wait a minute, Republicans want to stop some of these lending programs from the Federal Reserve. So they're putting out some signals there. I think that's politics on both sides, John. That That's the signal that uh, I'm getting. And it's mostly noise. Yeah. And again, just for the background, uh, we have to have either an omnibus spending bill or a continuing resolution by midnight tonight, or technically uh, the government is operating without a budget. As you noted, OMB has, has said they're not all that concerned because they think there is a budget agreement close. If that is the case, they are not going to order any shutdowns of government agencies. Um, if it appears that an agreement is close and we'll have something Monday or Tuesday. Um, now, again, uh, well, first of all, Jim, your perspective, do you think I mean, it doesn't look likely it will have an omnibus bill passed today. So do they punt with the CR or do they roll the dice and not pass anything tonight? Well, it could be a combination of those things. I think the vehicle that they want to put the COVID aid package on is the omnibus spending bill for fiscal year 2021, which, by the way, began October 1. So we've been in continuing stopgap spending measures for all this time. Uh, again, would I be shocked if this if this COVID aid package falls apart? Not not what we've been through with this Congress and this year, but expectations are that uh, there could be some political implications if they don't come up with the COVID aid package down in Georgia on those two critical Senate uh, January 5th runoffs. We'll have more on, on that later. So, and the omnibus spending bill is the big kahuna here. You think a $900 you know, billion dollar package would the, be the biggest thing, but we're talking about a $1.4 trillion you know, spending measure. And I will tell you on omnibus spending measures, uh, you always get some surprises, mostly positive, but uh, how both political parties get in some of language that has not been rumored. Uh, and this could include some agriculture programs, and it could include WIP, uh, you know, WIP plus language, John. Well, let's dig into that. I, well, first of all, update on WIP plus, uh, you reported today that that uh, funding, that those checks are starting to flow again after some uh, 
some pushing that you've done on behalf of farmers. When, and I had an email from a Signal to Noise listener or viewer uh, who emailed me early this morning, and he said that he received notice this morning that 50% of his WIP Plus payment should arrive before the end of 2020, and that's what I confirmed. Uh, they'll, you know, the, the, these producers will be getting them next week, I was told. So, you know, payments have resumed, and but we don't know whether any additional portion of the remaining 50% is going to be honored, but I was told to uh, stay tuned relative to this omnibus bill. So that's the signal I got, John, that I think we could, you know, get some news. Now, the the holdup has been the Office of Management and Budget was in what they call a reapportionment with USDA on in order to complete the payments. I have no idea what that means and still don't. Yeah. But at least that was provided by OMB, so now we see a resumption of this. But, but number one, we've got some good news on at least that, you know, 50 per cent payment for a multi multitude of years and then two to me we're going to get some other good news on that other you know 50 percent payout what else could we be looking for in this omnibus spending bill for ag well we're gonna we we better get some details on the uh projected 13 billion dollars in agriculture you know funding into that bill then we've got at least 13 billion dollars in you know food and nutrition primarily food stamps john and i know that's a matter of contention and 10 billion dollars for uh um broadband you know funding uh that they continue to fund uh, that and that's a critical need in in the rural countryside what i'm hearing is that we may have some specific uh, language relative to improving cfap 2 in which uh, some contract poultry producers and perhaps others you know will get some payments i don't know mm -hmm. whether that includes the ethanol industry or not these are some of the, the of the language uh, elements that uh, we will all look at once we get the official language when they release it when you hear that official language has been released that's the signal that this thing is going to go onto the uh, House and Senate floor and it's going to be approved. That's the signal that I'm waiting for. All right. And that's the omnibus spending bill side. We also have now the coronavirus aid package side. Uh, what do we know about ag provisions in that at this point, at least in the, the $908 billion package that's been put together by the uh, uh, by the bipartisan group. Well, that's what I went through for the aid bill. That's the 13 billion. Okay, right. Yeah, 13, 13, and 10, and some perhaps specific language relative to contract poultry payments. Let's hope some additional, you know, flexibility, you know, for the uh, hog industry as well. And the ethanol lobbyists have campaigned for more than a few months for for their aid. That remains to be seen on that. On the omnibus side, uh, John, what, what I think that'll be more into into the whip uh you know plus uh area and perhaps some other uh you know you know surprises uh the word broke this morning that the democrats were trying to get in language that would uh waive uh, uh biden's uh um you know defense you know secretary nominee because he's yeah. part of the military now these are the things you see in the last train going out of a congress that will be no more after they adjourn and, and some uh, tax provisions that would benefit those that took out uh, ppp loans as well being a bandied around absolutely i think there's a litany uh, of things in either in either bill i don't know whether they're going to put them you know, but uh, in a must-pass bill of the, of this magnitude, uh, you you have a more than a few uh, you know senators and representatives wanting to get in their last of the Congress initiatives. So that's why we're waiting on official language. All right. Um, do you, well, let's pull out the crystal ball. Um, I think it's pretty obvious we're not going to see an omnibus spending bill tonight. Uh, so no. do do they no. pass the CR or do they do they wait till Monday? Well, you probably need a unanimous consent. I, I you know, they did last Friday, but again, I would think that they would, but you know, common sense in this Congress is are not equal t terms, you know. So uh, what I told uh, Brian Grady, a pro farmer, go watch your football games this weekend. Don't worry about Congress and all their 
ups and downs and wait until maybe Sunday or over the weekend to see whether or not they, they, they have a game plan unfolding. You would hope that there would be a uh, a short-term stopgap spend uh, stopgap spending major because any lawmaker should not want to see the government shut down, no matter whether or not there would be major implications or not, which there wouldn't for a short term. But, you know, the American public already is very negative when it comes to uh, Congress, and this would just increase that animosity, John. Well, particularly uh, if it impacts uh, vaccine distribution, that would, I, I think, get a pretty good uproar from the public. And there should be, you know, because, yeah, they're, they're, these states need... Uh, you know, funding and perhaps uh, language directing some some uh, some some additional provisions relative to the you know uh, you know, you know vaccine distribution. Absolutely, this is not a child's game they're playing in Congress. And so, of course, if we don't get an omnibus spending bill today, that means we're not going to get a uh, coronavirus aid package today either. Which uh, I guess means everybody's going to be trying to go home, trying to go home on Wednesday. Is that is that when we actually see something happen on both these issues? I think you could uh, either Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, the, the The biggest thing, the biggest positive this week is when Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, went public in front of the cameras and said uh, they're not going to go home until there's a COVID aid package. Uh, I think he even said approved because that that would yeah. be major as well. And uh, that was when the markets reacted. We made new highs in the st- in all across the board. Intraday, our actual uh, you know highs when it came to the uh, Dow, you're down today because of the uncertainty, as we've already you know talked about. But I'm going to take my cue from Mitch McConnell. He would not have gone public with that if he is usually on the mark prognostications on uh, the end of a session is not realized. So I'm pretty upbeat that we'll eventually have something. All right. Let's, uh, I want to get into uh, climate issues here in just a moment. But first, let's turn to Ryan's question. I appreciate Ryan, Danny, and Jay. I'll uh, check it in on here. And again, uh, throw a question in the comments if there's something you'd like us to talk about. But Ryan's asking about grain export numbers for 2021. Uh, I guess the first conversation you've got to have on that is China phase one. All indications are at this point that they're moving forward, but I guess we don't know how yet they're going to react to admin- new administration, Jim. Yes. Well, Biden's people, now his U.S. trade rep nominee is Catherine, um, I forgot, a Thai. Uh, and she's, uh speaks Mandarin uh, Chinese fluently. Her parents uh, came from Taiwan. They, they got to Taiwan from China, and she was is well known when it comes to uh, U.S.-China trade relations because one of her portfolios when she worked at the U.S. trade rep's office was making sure China lived up to its World Trade Organization commitment. So I think she's going to be serious in the implementation of not only their WTO commitments, uh, which they've been rather lenient on, and, uh, and also relative to the uh, phase one. I, I hear pretty good positives out of the Biden people is that they're not going to take on the phase one agreement, but they do want China to fulfill those commitments. Now, if that's the case, they're short somewhat uh, on the uh, on on the phase on the first calendar year, you know, commitments for 2020, and they already have higher tonnage, higher dollar amounts, you know, commitments for 2021. So that's going to be a significant factor as 2021 unfolds, uh, uh, John. But Overall, for for the question, not only China, China needs the grains. Uh, They're building up, I think, their hog industry, at least from China numbers, if you can believe them. And a lot of people don't, to tell you the truth. Uh, They're they're back at 90% of where they want to be in their hog industry. Well, that means they're going to need corn, other uh, feed grains, uh, soybean meal, uh, etc. So they'll need uh, soybeans to crush into a meal. And uh, so they outright need, you know, you know, uh, you, uh, you know, these commodities. Overall, uh, outside this country, we've got carryover for both corn and soybeans, uh, you know, going down to, in the case of soybeans, uh, you're down to the rust once USDA gets realistic on some of their demand estimates. Uh, I noted this morning that... Uh, 
you know, USDA's, uh, we're already at for export sales for U.S. soybean exports at 90% of USDA's projection for the 2021 year. So most of the traders uh, and analysts in the industry thinks uh, the world board is going to have to boost their estimate from 25 to 70, you know, million bushels. When you wow. when you're when you're at squeezy tight carryover now for soybeans, this is why the market continues to be bought on the down days because uh, importers are looking at the situation. They're looking at to the mixed weather patterns in South America, more than a little concern there in Brazil and some of the dry areas, even though they've recently, uh, you know, had some precip, but not all across their, you know, key growing regions. And also uh, more than a few uh, domestic uh, buyers of uh, corn and soybeans are short bought. So they've been buying the dips. So that's why you've seen the pretty good run up this week and soybean meal which once again i remember the first thing i learned when i started at pro farmer from merrill oster as a big hog producer merrill was you make sure you've got your meal meat needs covered uh by thanksgiving and that's still very solid advice of those if if those uh users of meal would have done that this year they'd be ahead right now john bottom line on exports is it looks like the u.s is going to have a pretty good to very good year in 2021 relative to the exports uh, not only volume but value because we've got soybeans again over tw uh, well over now twelve dollars uh, and uh, you know corn uh, will con uh, in my judgment continue to go higher because we're going to have that battle for acreage in 2021 so that's going to rise uh, you know corn up uh, and also th their carryover has been going down John so a pretty upbeat picture from the numbers we know right now yeah, one twist, uh, potential twist on the uh, uh, China numbers, uh, their purchases have been driven in part by uh, their commitments under phase one, but also they've they've seen price opportunity uh, earlier on in this year that isn't there anymore. And so it'll be interesting to see if that impacts their purchasing behavior at all. Yes, well, they're already, I quoted one trader who's been uncannily accurate on China uh, over the last year. He's already saying China has purchased anywhere from 700,000 tons to 1 million tons of Brazilian safrina crop, a uh, corn. Mm -hmm. So they're they're already looking out further because they're they're uh, nervous relative to the carryover situation in the U.S. and also South American you know production potential. So uh, you know I think China is signaling that we're going to have uh, you know firm uh, cash and futures prices for both corn and soybeans, and we need that to continue because as we've always said, uh, farmers and ranchers want to get their you know cash income from the marketplace as opposed to add hawk uh, CFAP payments, uh, et cetera. Indeed. Well, let's talk about that for a little bit because there is likely to be a dramatic change in 2021. We had some 30% uh, plus of uh, farm income coming from ad hoc payments in 2020. We're not likely to have a significant uh, source of ad hoc payments in 2021. As you mentioned, I think most farmers would welcome that, but will the marketplace be able to replace that amount of cash that went into ag country from uh, CFEP2. You'd have to have a combination of a pretty big crop situation and also uh, higher prices from even what we see today. You can't rule that out, but it's hard to replace 36.7%. That's USDA's estimate of net farm income being uh, taxpayer payments, uh, John. So, but that by no means we're going to see a major downturn in net you know, farm income. But uh, to get to this year's calendar year level farm income, it could be a, a, a hurdle because we're, we're looking at, as you said, all those multiple billions of dollars in both trade mitigation payments and CFAP, uh, you know, one and two. Uh, but, you know, if you're talking even the possibility and I think that, that it, it is uh, it, it is fair to say the possibility of thirteen dollar beans and four fifty uh, four seventy five corn uh, that'll go a long ways to making up some of that uh, you know uh, you know difference from a you know government taxpayer uh, you know payment uh, payment area, John. 
Yeah, indeed. And it'll be interesting to watch how that plays out in 2021. All right, let's let's turn to uh, climate change. Uh, you said this morning on AgriTalk that uh, this is a very aggressive climate team that uh, Joe Biden is putting forward. Uh, you know, EPA, uh, the climate czar, uh, John Kerry as the ultimate climate czar, if you will, um, the appointment of the Department of Interior. How did what? In, in your perspective, how is this all playing out, and what signal is this sending to the marketplace? Well, the well, the signal to the marketplace is aggressive because you look up and down his cabinet list, and more than a few, the majority of them have experience in this climate change. Uh, area. Now, Biden can do a lot relative to regulations and uh, executive orders, just much like we've seen under the Obama and the Trump administrations. But he really needs Congress, uh, you know, control of the Senate because they'll have control of the House, although the slimmest majority since 1945, John. But I want to go back to some of these uh, nominees. Senator Kramer, Republican from North Dakota, just a few minutes ago came out and said he's going to focus, and there could be a brawl, was his word, uh, when mm. when they look at uh, Biden's uh, you know nominee for the Interior Department, uh, oh, really? who, yes, who was Deborah uh, uh, you know Deborah uh, Holland. Uh, she was one of the first supporters of the Green New Deal. So I think they're laying down some uh, some markers here, John. And of course, along with John Kerry, who negotiated and pushed through the Paris Club uh, Agreement, uh, he's going to take the international flavor, and he's really a known commodity. He's aggressive when it comes to uh, you know climate change, and uh, you know to be frank, he let China and India off the hook for ten years of not having to come up with near the constraints that the U.S. would 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 be in. So hopefully that'll change in some of the updated revisions if the U.S. is going to rejoin it. And Biden said we'll rejoin it the first week he's in office after January 20th inauguration. But the other uh, key person is former EPA Administrator Gina, uh, uh, Gina McCarthy. McCarthy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she's, uh, she's a pistol. She's a straight-talking uh, Massachusetts native, and she's going to be the domestic side of the, quote, energy czar people. And she once told EPA employees to, quote, and this is a quote, Keep your asses in your seats and wait out the Trump administration. Uh, so uh, she's pretty aggressive. She likes the stick approach. She likes the regulatory yeah. approach. And as we talked on AgriTalk, uh, this is what concerns the agribusiness and the, uh, and the overall business community, that there has to be a good combination of carrot and stick for for a true climate change process in this great country to succeed and i know uh she will not make the final decisions and that's where biden i think will be a hopefully will be a, a pragmatist once it come to being realistic of what he can do because it could really come back to haunt the democrat party in the first midterm elections uh, under the biden administration in 2022 john yeah, and as we talked uh, again this morning, you know, there I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, but there has been a, a little bit of optimism in ag country about where some of the uh, climate issues are headed and, and seeing some opportunities for profit. And I think the uh, the appointment of Gina McCarthy in there maybe puts some question marks on on how much carrot and how much stick there will be there ultimately and maybe tamper some of that optimism because of the experience that agriculture had with her when she was EPA administrator in the uh, second Obama administration. Yes, including the waters of the U.S. rule. Right. When she took on Farm Bureau and others. Remember the ditch? She said to ditch. Uh, you know that uh, you know you know that concept getting you know directly digging if you will you know the farm bureau uh, excellent lobbying position on 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 the WOTUS bill but we also have
had the nominee for the EPA come out, Michael Regan. Yeah. Uh, he's been giving usually favorable reviews. The the one we were looking at were two from the pork producers and the corn producers. The national pork producers came out and said, hey, we've worked with him in the past. They congratulated Regan on his nomination. Uh, you know, North Carolina, they noted, is a major, you know, pork producing states and quote, you know, from MPPC, he's always had an open door, valued uh, diverse points of view and worked to find solutions that were based on science and data that were his guiding decisions. So that's a pretty good initial statement. Now, the corn growers were were more cautious. They, they said that they're going to look forward to working with Regan on issues of importance to corn farmers. And that's number one is the renewable, you know, fuel standard program. Right. And they want an open dialogue. So those are the two major ones but in my research well, on then, he, Regan, then he had uh, then he had NCBA saying that they recognize that he's been nominated yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which was pretty much the, the sum of their statement which was kind of odd but yeah <laughs> well they've learned to be cautious I guess that's I history guess. showing out there but uh, um he brings his state. He's got a pretty good pedigree. Uh, he what you used to work in two uh, administrations in Washington under EPA, so he knows where the doors are, John. But it, it, there's a lot of landmines when it comes to uh, EPA that he's going to have to uh, be very careful in order to uh, you know build the consensus. And of course, uh, he'll be uh, led. He didn't have the energy two energy czars, if you will, that the last. Just a few EPA administrators have had relative to Biden's really focus on, on climate change. And because we're going to see USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack, uh, the uh, designate, come in and uh, he's going to play a principal role as long with the Energy Secretary, uh, Treasury mm -hmm. Department, uh, all that. That shows you, you talk about a multitude of focus by the uh, incoming Biden people on, on climate change. But bottom line for farmers and ranchers that that I get emails from and talk with over the phones, they want to see the details of how it will impact the ag business sector. And I think they're right on there. They want to see whether or not they, this program could be inclusive relative to practices, uh, your know, best practices that they've already done, the so-called legacy uh, you know, uh, uh, implementation, even if it's a one-year payment. And also, they want to make sure that trading companies relative to this, uh, you know, potential program are not seeing the most of the rewards as opposed to actual producers right. who have to fulfill those commitments, John. Yeah, exactly. And I want to go back and highlight uh, that NPPC statement about Michael Regan being nominated uh, as EPA administrator, because that is very significant um, because, number one, North Carolina is, you know, the largest hog producing state. But also, number two, uh, that's where those uh, nuisance lawsuits against uh, Smithfield yes. took place. And um, for NPPC to come out of that, what transpired there? and those lawsuits and, and say that they had positive communication with Michael Regan. I think that's a significant statement uh, going into his nomination. I think it is. And Regan has also been involved in implementing those new monitoring requirements mm -hmm. for hog operations in the state. And, and that another goes, you know, with the MPPC, you know, statement that they've worked with him in the past so he doesn't appear to be appears to be at this juncture uh pragmatic but in that statement from the pork producers they did say we hope those same qualities will be carried over to his leadership at epa because right. we've seen chameleons before come in and at the state level and then be far more aggressive at the at the federal level so but at least uh uh, he he does get uh, pretty uh, uh, high rankings from people who know him and have and have worked with him, John. Well, let's face it: as a head of environmental quality in a state, you have a bit more freedom than you do as an agency administrator in the federal government, where you really are driven by uh, what the White House wants to see done. All true.
All true. All true. All right, let's get to a, a couple of uh, listener questions here. And again, if you have a question for us, drop it there in the comments uh, there on Facebook. Uh, and I'm hey, Greg, I'm sorry, we probably aren't going to give you a good answer on this one, but Jim, I'm going to ask you anyways, uh, how is Outlook on cattle prices in 2021 with feed input cost up? You want to take that one on at all? Challenging. If I had my, I ha, I used to, when I give my speeches, I have ProFarmers Outlook. Uh, email us, and I specifically will give you ProFarmers Outlook ranges, or resistance and ranges of where see, we see both cattle and hog prices going. I just don't have them in front of me at this particular time. But it, it, the, the meat prices in general are going to be a creature of, uh, if you will, of the COVID aid, you know, you know vaccine distribution because we're going to see a pickup eventually and not only the U.S. economy but the world economy and that should bode well for the rising demand for protein. So we could have some consumptive demand push. I think we're going to have a demand pull markets across the board for the grains and the meats. Uh, but it's not all rosy because it's going to take some time to get through, you know, to get that, you know, those vaccines, plural, uh, you know, distributed and, and implemented. But I know, I remember at the top end, there was $111 for cattle, but I'll give you specific contract numbers and all that. But email e email me, John, make sure that I get his email and, uh, you know, I'll give him the specifics. Yeah, yeah, Greg, drop us an email at signalsandnoise at farmdriddle.com and uh, we'll get you a response. And sure. uh, Jim, another thing that's going to play a factor in that is just uh, how restaurants come back online, how quickly they can come back online and how uh, how the meat industry can anticipate where that shift's going to go. Because again, it's, you know, we've talked about this previously, but it takes a, a, a different... It, it takes a different set of packaging and processing to send to uh, the retail industry and the grocery stores that it does for the restaurant industry and, and some of the wholesale industry. And so that's going to take some adjustment uh, from the meatpacking plants to get back and, and figure out where that balance is going to be post-COVID. No doubt. And also the school system, because they, yeah. they use so much meat and uh, uh, hamburgers, uh, uh, etc. And of course, the dairy products, the specialty products, all that is critical, is why many of the economists that I've talked with relative to the ag letter, our look ahead to 2021, are pretty uh, upbeat from uh, late spring through, uh, through the remainder of 2020. 21 john they, they to a person they were upbeat now there's always flies in the ointment potential black swans and we listed those any new president is eventually challenged by this skullduggery world we live in and it could be iran it could be north you know north korea it could be china it could be russia so you always have those trepidations that you have to balance with uh, because we've just been through the biggest black swan i think in in our lives relative yeah. to uh yeah you know, relative to COVID-19. But at least we got some fundamentals going on uh, uh, in place. I will tell you a personal story. Uh, I've, I'm in the second week, no, going into the third week uh, of a diet. And I subscribe to Tavala. Now, I don't know whether you've seen that in your televisions, but it's prepared meals. They're not frozen. And some of their uh, uh, steak... Uh, although smaller quantities, and <laughs> pork and fish, they're, they're not only good, they're very good. The seasoning, etc. And that speaks well of the cattle industry. I mean, they're doing something with Tavala that I'm looking forward to eating steak in much smaller quantities. And, and every meal that I've had from them, mostly, uh, especially in the meat area, has been very good. So this shows the 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 the, uh, the 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 positive side of that cattle industry that they want to make almost every steak you have taste good and mm -hmm. at least from um, even when I'm on a diet uh, uh, the seasoning of their steaks is, is fantastic. So and we we received no compensation for that but so all the folks if you're listening <laughs> hey we're here. <laughs> 
Penny Skinner, yeah. obviously a great endorser. <laughs> yeah, well, it works. I mean, I'll tell you, I'd take them on if it didn't work. Plus, you get an oven, you you get a broiled oven and a steam oven for ninety nine dollars. I can't believe the deal. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. All right, we'll stay with uh, listener questions here sure. uh, from Reed. What's Biden's uh, new upcoming Secretary of Ag view on ethanol production? So uh, Tom Vilsack is a known quantity here because of his uh, previous service as USDA Secretary, and he's not been silent uh, in the years since when he's been at U.S. Dairy Export Council. Uh, fair to say he's a pretty strong supporter of ethanol. And uh, Jim, I think people may not realize how much he fought behind the scenes uh, with Gita McCarthy within the Obama administration over ethanol issues. He did. And two, he went on the record during the presidential campaign to get a difference between, at the time, uh, the Trump administration's uh, waivers of the RFS and got Biden to commit that he won't be anywhere near as aggressive on waivers as the Trump administration uh, was, has been, and was. So that's that's on the record. So that's one area. And, and uh, he definitely is a supporter of uh, renewable fuels. Watch to see how he tries to blend that into the climate change debate, because there are very good positive elements of the of the biofuel industry not just corn-based ethanol but uh, biodiesel renewable biodiesel etc so that and he's is an effective spokesman and and Vilsack does his homework and yeah. he is well respected by uh the incoming uh, uh, incoming president biden but, but his wife and him are much better friends than I ever thought that they were. So he, his portfolio is going to be more than just USDA secretary. He's going to be an advisor like a kitchen cabinet, if you will, advisor, from what I've been told by some of the Biden people, John. So that speaks highly, not only of Vilsack, but it also, again, he hopefully he'll follow through with his clear uh, you know, support for the biofuel industry because it's needed. Well, an understanding of agriculture in general, as the administration takes on these these carbon issues, the climate issues, um, Tom Vilsack has a very good understanding of how those impact agriculture. And I think, um, as you noted, has the president-elect's ear and I think will voice um, the concerns about impacts there as they come up. Yes, it's in the food area that he is very uh, opinionated on, and I don't see him changing. Uh, it's really more the democratic approach to food safety, food regulations, etc. But I'll try to be very brief here. This is heartfelt when it comes to the incoming returning USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack, because he was he was an orphan left on the steps, literally, of a Catholic yeah. church in Pittsburgh. But his adopted parents. Uh, he was a uh, overweight child, and they used to put pictures of fat kids on the refrigerator. He he tells this story. So food is very important to him, and you're not going to change him relative to prudent eating, the right kinds of fr you know, fruits and vegetables, etc. So I did want to put point that out again. Right. I've already seen people in the dairy industry of which he's coming from. Will he be too uh, focused on the on the dairy industry side as opposed to actual uh, dairy producers? I've already seen some uh, carping come in the last few days hmm. from some groups. And I think he's going to have to be very careful relative to dairy policy issues because because that's where he's coming well, from, John, and, right, and that's, that, that's going to be watching. Yeah. Absolutely, uh, and and he's he's smart. He'll he'll watch it. All right, another uh, question coming in uh, from Bradley, and, and this is a great question that I don't know that we have a good answer to, but we're, certainly something that we've uh, already noted we're going to be watching in the new year. And that is when will there be a legitimate carbon exchange? Uh, we've seen carbon exchanges coming online, but nothing of a scope yet that, that that looks like it would manage all of agriculture or a significant portion of agriculture uh, a very good question but the intent 
is to, in the ag, you know, you know, carbon credit area, and this is part of the Biden, uh, uh, you know, game plan, is to have USDA uh, for agriculture be the purveyor of this, almost like a reverse auction, if you will. Uh, and so I would watch for that. But again, I'll go back to you and all other listeners and viewers. Uh, from what you've told me, you want to see the details. We want to see the details. How is this going to be run? There'll be initial hearings on Capitol Hill on this way, uh, you know, you know, this thing. So hopefully it'll be thought out. Uh, but again, we, there's more unknowns than knowns on this one, but the, it looks like the government, uh, and this is the good role of government to at least set up the platform, but hopefully let private industry, you know, carry out the program, John. Right. Well, and it's, you know, the old same old chicken and egg thing. You've got to have enough uh, people offering up the carbon credits and you have to have enough people willing to buy up those carbon credits. Um, and government can play a role to provide incentives on both sides of that. Absolutely. And if it's done right, this could be uh, another revenue stream you know, for the business of agriculture, if, if uh, they can garner it with best practices, legacy things, all those things I, I said before. But we're just in the infancy of seeing this thing going. But this is not a new development. Obama tried to do some of these things, but they, they've got a lot of fits and starts. Now they'll build on that, John. And they made some major mistakes in the Obama administration on this topic. So we're going to see if they learned anything. Yeah, and it's not like nothing's happening. I mean, most no. of the major seed companies in the last year have come out with some sort of uh, carbon uh, program. Um, now, again, those are all ad hoc one-offs. Um, there are a couple companies that are trying to be a, a carbon credit clearinghouse, but again, none of those are of significant size yet. Yes. So it'll be interesting to see if, if USDA can uh, fill that void. And uh, I think the, Clinton the, said the, on AgriTalk today that the next issue of Farm Journal, was it, will have a a, a big article on some of these uh, you know, private industry initiatives. I think that's what he said, John. Yeah, that and um, this past uh, or yesterday, Thursday's AgriTalk AM, I'd encourage folks who are interested in carbon to go back and listen to that. Um, Tyne Morgan was guest hosting for Chip and had uh, some great coverage about, um, you know, how carbon, how this carbon industry is really going to be a data industry and, and, and the money is going to come from data um, and talking to some folks in the industry about how they're addressing it. And uh, it, it was very interesting. I encourage you to listen to that show. Uh, moving on to a, a comment here from Pat saying, working on year in taxes, a lot of the PPP, CFAP, and MFP payments will be sent back to the government by April 15th. Probably true, but, you know, imagine how much worse it would be if you didn't have those payments to be sending yes. oh, to yes. the government. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. a problem you want to have if you have to pay yeah. tax taxes you know i'll take it i'll take it if you don't want it uh yeah that there 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 will be some of that and it, some of the changes in the ppp uh that were that will be more you know business and farmer friendly could show up yeah. in one of these two COVID aid packages or the omnibus bill from what we're hearing john so i don't think we've seen the end relative to the operation of the ppp program and uh you know uh other programs john but you as far as taxes you brought up a lot depends on taxes for 2021 in the future on the critical to georgia you know, Senate races, and maybe we should go to that now, John, because other yeah, than other than COVID-19 vaccine, to me, which is the biggest issue uh, for 2021, because it's going to drive not only our wherewithal, of hopefully finally getting out, but it's going to drive almost all markets, uh, consumption, uh, et cetera, uh, financial markets, agriculture markets, et cetera. But in the operation of the of the Biden program, there's going to be a big difference to whether or not uh, the Democrats uh, control the Senate, because that'll be a governor, if you will, on on, uh, you know, some of the uh, aggressive side of the Biden and the Democrats uh, uh, initiatives. Well, even if they would win both seats, they still can't get too aggressive because the, the margin is so tight in both the House and the Senate. But it certainly does open a little bit more of a door for them if they were to win both those Senate seats. Oh, Georgia. I think so. I think they, they would get uh, aggressive. But, you know, when I did some research after AgriTalk, you know, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the prognosticators who were so awful, most of them, not all of them, 
wrong in 26, uh, uh, you know, 2020 elections are saying, oh, yeah, this thing, the, the outcomes are looking increasingly too close to call. Now, historically, Republicans have dominated runoff elections in Georgia because they tend to be low turnouts. Now, in this past election in November, almost 70% of the Georgia voters voted. And that's mm. about 5 million votes were cast in the fall. Uh, and it turned the state blue for the president for the first time in 28 years. Now, the demographics are going to play the key in, in this, uh, you know, two Senate contest because uh, uh, the Democrats need a very strong showing from African-American voters. And the Republicans are going to try to bank again on Trump uh, Trump to deliver the rural and ex-urban uh, whites on Election Day. But right now we have a little battle, intraparting battle in the Republican Party because of uh, several of them, including Trump, has been knocking some, not only the election, uh, you know, results in Georgia for president, but a number of the Republican officials in the state. Will that uh, negativity uh, lead enough Republicans in Georgia not to vote? Uh, that that's, that's a question right. mark. I don't care who you talk to. They don't, they don't know. But polling suggests that... Uh, uh, you know, Purdue uh, against Ossoff and Leffler against uh, Warnock are, are toss-ups right now. So uh, I will tell you, um, more than 914,000 people have already voted in Georgia, including 24,000 who did not vote in the general election. Really? Yes, just got wow. that in minutes ago. And I thought, boy, this is going to be something to watch. Turnout has not topped three-fifths of the general election number in any of the previous four Georgia runoffs since 1992. So if you go on that, it would suggest about three million ballots are cast overall. So there's your line marker. If it's much more than three million, <clears throat> we could see a volatile uh, race under both races because that would tell you that they're nationalizing this race, which I really think they are, John, the amount of oh, yeah, money that's going in. Yeah, they definitely are. And I think you are going to see higher than usual uh, turnout for this runoff race. But I, I think it'd be nearly impossible to see the kind of turnout that we saw in the in the general election. So that puts it somewhere at, you know, three and a half to four, maybe yeah. million turnout. And you would think that the re that the uh, Republicans would have learned some lessons that the early voters in the presidential election heavily skewed toward the Democrats as opposed to Republicans. So we're going to see if they've learned some lessons. I think that was one of Trump's strategic uh, faults that he yeah. poo-pooed the early voters, not only mail-in but early voters, because so he relied everything on election day, and that was a failed, you know, failed strategy as it turned out. Is it, I assume it's pretty highly likely that both these seats will go to the same party? Uh, I, I don't like to say highly likely. It would, I say highly likely that the Republicans would win at least one of the two. Uh, and if that's the case, then the Republicans would control the Senate because the Democrats need to win both, uh, highly unlikely, uh, but still possible, because it would be 50-50 in the Senate and the Democrats would break the tie because... Uh, um, you know, you know, Vice President-elect Kamala, uh, uh, you know, Kamala Harris, you know, would would break tie vote. Right. So, uh, yeah, but, but you've I, got the same electorate voting for these two positions statewide at the same time. It, it would seem to be difficult to split that. Well. Yeah, but I've just I've learned in elections it's just the the unexpected is happening too much. Again, notes Biden claimed the states of sixteen electoral votes by a margin of around twelve thousand out of those five million votes that were, were cast uh, in in the fall, John, and Ossoff came, that's the Democratic candidate against Purdue. He came within eighty eight thousand votes, just two percentage points of upsetting Purdue. Now, the other right. contest is complex because the, they had different rules for the special election, and that drew 19 candidates. Uh, you know, the top Republicans were Leffler and Collins, and they got a combined 46% of the vote, and Warnock and his two main Democrat opponents 
took 45 percent. So you can see those percentages pretty close, isn't it? Within the margin of error. I guess that can either be uh, both or one and one. It would be hard to me, based just on history, for the Democrats to win both. But I think this past election has shown that these mail-in votes are a game changer. And we're going to see if Georgia, uh, you know, does it again relative to the Democratic, uh, you know, party. All right. Let's get in one last question here uh, from Dustin. Is Dairy Aid set on donation program money or possible food box yet? Uh, That's still a question mark, but uh, folks in Washington have liked the food boxes. Uh, yes, and they and I know the Democrats have complained uh, about it and how it was implemented. They they probably will continue it, uh, change the name, some of the requirements, etc. I will tell you that um, you know Debbie Stabenow uh, right now, the ranking member on the Senate Ag Committee, is pushing uh, for a dairy donation program in the COVID aid uh, package. Uh, mm. So that's interesting. Uh, I know Colin Peterson is as well. Whether or not that uh, is is in the final language remains to be seen. But I know it's a market factor in the dairy market because if that were to be announced as in that bill, that will be uh, you know supportive to a number of dairy products, both in the cash and the futures markets, John. Yeah, and as we see uh, Democrat influence increase in the new administration, you're going to see that flip more towards uh, food box type programs rather than direct payments. Absolutely. You know, it's the kind of the domestic version of food for peace, if you will. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And 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 food banks. The Democrats are already saying in this COVID package, I think there's some money to help a continued aid to the food banks. I, I consistently say I hope that the food bank system works on the st- infrastructure that they have and getting more cooling units out there, you know, for the future. Because I don't think this is a one-off thing. I'm not forecasting another COVID-19 situation, God forbid. But I do think that we need a a, a better system on the food banks so they, they can store mold, uh, more food relative to, you know, food emergencies, for weather-related yeah. things that, that I'll almost guarantee you, so you know, crisis in the next uh, decade uh, from uh, tornadoes, floods, fires, etc. So we're going to need that infrastructure anyway. You know, let's get through it. All right, and quickly since we're going long, anyways, let's. Uh, we haven't talked yet about um, the House Ag Committee. We know how that's going to shape up now. We've got uh, Doug Scott as the uh, new chairman. Yes, David and- Scott, excuse me. Yes, uh, and, uh, you know, from Georgia, and he put out a statement by saying he's going to bring up a number of black American issues relative to holding USDA's feet to the fire under responsibly implementing not only farm programs, but overall policy, you know, when it comes to black Americans. So he hit, he hit that front and center, uh, John. All right, and then the minority leader uh, or the uh, uh, ranking member on the Ag Committee is going to be? I was hoping you were going to remember because the name escaped me. Yeah. <laughs> on the dem- on the Republican, Republican side, oh, oh, JT Thompson, JT, yeah, JT yeah. Thompson. Thompson. I'm yeah. sorry, JT <laughs> Thompson. Yeah, he, we've had him on more than a few times on AgriTalk. A gregarious guy, uh, knows his stuff knows the 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 dairy market of course and the sugar market because of hershey in pennsylvania but yet he knows the sensitivity of uh, u.s sugar uh, jim we just lost your audio well i guess with that we will wrap it up and uh, we'll catch up with jim again uh, in a couple of weeks we're going to be gone on a uh, holiday break for the next couple of weeks. And unless something comes up, we may throw in a special in there somewhere. That wraps up this week's edition of DC Signal to Noise.